Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we discuss topical global issues. And I have conversations with foreign policy thought leaders who discuss their life, career, and the big events that shape their worldview. I have a special episode of the podcast today, the conversation you are about to hear with former U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations, Zalmay Khalilzad, was taped in front of a live audience in Chicago on the night before Donald Trump's inauguration. As I mentioned at the outset of the interview, I do think that in many ways, Ambassador Khalilzad was the ideal person with whom to speak at the dawn of the next Republican administration. He served in senior positions in the Bush White House, including as ambassador to his native Afghanistan and Iraq, and was also someone on the short list for Secretary of State as Donald Trump assembled his cabinet. We kick off discussing what to expect from Trump's foreign policy and how the new president will approach some of the myriad of challenges around the world before we pivot to discussing his own fascinating personal story that took him from poverty in Afghanistan to the heights of power in Washington, D.C. And these stories, I should note, are included in his recently published memoir, The Envoy, From Kabul to the White House, My Journey Through a Turbulent World. Now, to set the scene for you a little bit, this event was taped in front of an event room in 1871, which is a tech co-working space in Chicago. There were about 200 people in the crowd, most of whom were members of Ivy, the social university, which organized the event. And this episode is presented in partnership with Ivy, the social university, through a robust curriculum spanning policy, entrepreneurship, social impact, and the arts. Ivy members enjoy access to a lifetime of new experiences, friendships, and ideas. Whether it's in-person talks with world-class leaders, including Ambassador Cameron Munter, GE Chairman Jack Welch, and Pulitzer Prize winner Nicholas Kristof, cultural expeditions to Cuba and Iceland, or tickets to the opera or ballet, Ivy provides its members a lifetime of learning. Over the past three years, the Ivy community has grown to 20,000 inspiring members in seven cities across the nation, including New York, D.C., Chicago, Los Angeles, San Francisco, Boston, and Miami. Register on ivy.com to begin the application process. It's just two minutes with no commitment, and you'll receive a $100 event credit if you join Ivy and mention Global Dispatches in the referral section when registering. So a big thank you to Ivy and to the other co-sponsors. And now here is my conversation with Ambassador Zalmay Khalilzad, live from Chicago. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. Uh, so I am the host of the Global Dispatches podcast and the editor of UN Dispatch, a blog about the UN and global affairs. We are recording this 
conversation with Zalmay Khalilzad as a live taping of the podcast. Uh, so keep in mind that if you ask a question, you could be heard by a few thousand people who download the podcast. The podcast is uh, about global affairs and world policy. We discuss topical global issues in the news. We also have deeper and longer conversations with foreign policy thought leaders and newsmakers who discuss their life and their career and the big events that shape their worldview from an early age, including some fun and digressions about historic foreign policy events in which their career intersected. Uh, so with that, it is my distinct pleasure to welcome to the stage Ambassador Zalmay Khalilzad. Uh, he is a U.S. counselor at the Center for Strategic and International Studies and president of Greif and Partners, an international business consulting firm based in D.C. He is the former U.S. ambassador to the United Nations under George W. Bush. He also served as the ambassador to his native Afghanistan and also to Iraq. And after this event, he will be signing copies of his latest book, which is called The Envoy, From Kabul to the White House, My Journey Through a Turbulent World. Welcome, Sir Ambassador. Thank, Thank you. you. Have a seat. So in many ways, I think you are the ideal person with whom to have a conversation about foreign policy and world affairs on the eve of a pretty transformative moment in U.S. foreign policy. Uh, of course, the inauguration of Donald Trump is tomorrow. And in case you are, are not aware, of course, uh, Ambassador has had a distinguished career serving mostly but not exclusively Republican administrations. Uh, and he also introduced Donald Trump ahead of his first major foreign policy address last April. Um, so with, with that in mind, as I said, I think you are just the perfect person to speak to on a night like tonight. I, I thought I would be speaking to an empty room. Yeah. <laughs> Hardly, hardly. Uh, so my, my first question, I'd like to kick off with, with a question about what to expect from Trump foreign policy. What indicators will you be looking for in the coming days, weeks, or months that might suggest to you whether or not the Trump administration will be a radical departure from traditional foreign policy that as it's been practiced for the last several decades, or whether it might remain within kind of the general confines of what's been traditional U.S. foreign policy. Well, uh, thank you uh, for the introduction, and thanks to all of you uh, for coming to spend uh, part of your, of your evening uh, listening to me. Um, I would like to make a distinction uh, in terms of U.S. foreign policy uh, of during the Cold War period and then the post-Cold War and uh, put Donald Trump's uh, inclinations, uh, preferences, some of the thoughts that he has communicated in the context really of the post-Cold War uh, foreign policy. Uh, and uh, I believe that in the post-Cold War period, uh, we have not really had a grand strategy that has really gelled. Uh, we believed, uh, unlike the Cold War period, where there was a broad bipartisan agreement about containing the Soviets as the principal preoccupation of U.S. foreign policy, there were debates and arguments uh, about degrees of emphasis on what's required to deter the Soviets. 
uh, about where to focus more effort at any particular time. But uh, broadly, uh, both Republicans and Democrats agreed that containment of the Soviet Union was the right strategy, and that was the principal uh, appropriately focus of U.S. foreign policy. And we looked at other issues around the world, largely from that prism. Uh, and in the post-Cold War period, uh, um, there was no real serious re-examination of what should we be about now that the Soviet uh, Union was no longer there, and no grand strategy as such uh, really gelled. Some of us, including myself, who at that time uh, was uh, working in the Pentagon uh, when the Cold War was over, uh, heading the policy planning shop at uh, the Defense Department, um, uh, proposed uh, a grand strategy, uh, but I, I don't believe it, it really gelled. So. Uh, some of the ideas or institutions uh, that uh, were created or we embraced during the Cold War or at the beginning of the Cold War went on. And there was an effort when I went back uh, to the government uh, when George W. Bush ultimately was announced as the winner uh, of the elections against Al Gore, uh, there was a thought of doing a fundamental review of U.S. Uh, place in the world uh, and maybe come up with a strategy, but it didn't uh, happen because 9-11 happened and then we became uh, exclusively almost, at least I became, but I'm sure uh, the, much of the government uh, became focused on, on uh, the challenges as, as were perceived as a result of the 9-11 attack. So having said that, uh, now about uh, 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 President-elect uh, Trump, I think one thing that is consistent in his uh, views uh, uh, for some time and uh, has been that to test improving relations with Russia. He has stayed true to that proposition from the very beginning during the primaries, although politically, when I thought this would not be a fruitful idea to embrace, but he, 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 he did embrace it despite the costs, political costs, during the national elections. Again, he persisted, again, despite the political cost, uh, I didn't think there is a huge audience or population in the United States that uh, supports uh, 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 Russia, Putin. And since he, he was declared the winner of the election, he has persisted. So one thing that I would like to see uh, as to uh, whether he uh, how he would test that proposition uh, because Bush and Obama both uh, tried to uh, improve relations and failed, and uh, why he thinks he would be uh, more successful. And there is, we will probably can talk about them, some uh, issues uh, um, uh, and some approaches that uh, that uh, that uh, that uh, would inform one as to uh, uh, 
whether he has succeeded or not. Uh, President Kennedy's experience with the Soviet, with Khrushchev, was uh, the engagement where he was tested. Uh, the Soviets came with the judgment that he was a weak and inexperienced president and led to the Cuban Missile Crisis, ultimately. So, what, so yeah. looking forward to the next yeah. few few months, yeah. few few weeks, yeah. what um, sort of moments might there be to test this proposition that uh, Trump might be able to have a more productive relationship with the Russians? I mean, it already seems to be manifesting itself in, in a number of ways. Uh, you know, they do seem to have at least a, a cordial personal relationship. Right. Um, Donald Trump seems to be supporting a lot of entities in European politics that are also somewhat more pro-Russian than others, like Marine Le Pen, the, mm-hmm. who, who may run, may become the, the next president of, of France, and populist movements uh, that are seen as being sort of pro-Putin and pro-Russia. So right. that, I mean, that itself seems to be a radical departure from what we have been accustomed to over the last, you know. Uh, several decades of, of U.S. foreign policy. What, uh, I suppose, are the implications uh, for that shift globally? Yeah. Well, uh, I'm not sure that uh, uh, the Russian-American uh, cooperation, engagement and cooperation uh, will, uh, will bear fruit. If it does, that would be good. And, uh, and, uh, but I would think there are risks uh, with it, and in this, uh, if you don't prepare uh, and sequence things appropriately, it could be dangerous, it could be risky. And one of which is uh, uh, whether it, uh, the uh, approach to Russia undermines the uh, alliance, uh, uh, the, our alliances, and um, it would be more prudent, and that's what I uh, argue, uh, is that we should reach out to the allies first. Um, there is a lot of uncertainty and concern among uh, allies because of uh, of President-elect Trump's comments about Putin, but also comments about the, the allies. And so uh, uh, it would be important to reassure the allies first. I also think it would be important to announced at least his program that he has said in terms of uh, uh, the defense uh, increases that he has uh, uh, talked about that to deal with this U.S. vulnerability with regard to cyber, U.S. vulnerabilities in both conventional and nuclear arenas, and then uh, approach uh, uh, the Russians because uh, the risk otherwise is uh, that we could play into the hands of uh, of, of of russia which which uh, uh, could undermine uh, the, the us uh, alliances i will say one thing about the alliance uh, i'm sorry which is yeah. that i think he's right uh, uh, although i have my concerns about the uh, russian approach i think uh, trump is right to raise questions about the alliance uh, in terms of uh, is the alliance focused on uh, the real problems of the current period, which Russia is part of it, but there are other problems, particularly in the South, which may, maybe we'll come to, and whether there is adequate burden sharing among uh, the allies, 
And I think is, uh, the nervousness of allies uh, with regard to him and, uh, uh, and Russia can be an opportunity uh, to uh, bring about the necessary adjustments uh, so with regard to the, uh, yeah. to regard the allies. Because I myself yeah. have been frustrated at times when I have been in government to get the allies uh, to do uh, their fair share and to develop the capabilities relevant to the current uh, security environment. Well, it, it is probably historically true that the U.S. government, no matter who the administration is, complains that their NATO allies don't do as much as they think they but, do. But, but that's what right, seems though. seems to be it different is this time. Too. Yeah, is, is the directness. And, and because which, of the mm-hmm. lack of success, largely, of the earlier effort... Yeah. Uh, where, uh, uh, you know, how do you get the attention of the allies? Mm-hmm. Some have said uh, that, uh, the, you know, they need to do more. For example, the NATO effort, uh, uh, I, I just, the work that I have not done, but some other people have done, we, may, we uh, make 70% of the costs of uh, NATO. Is, uh, uh, the burden is carried by the U.S. and the, uh, our alliance, the economies are bigger than ours if you put them all together. So there, there, there are legitimate issues. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I, I would think that uh, on that score, and we can talk about it, what needs to be done by the alliance and where the problems are, why aren't they doing more? Mm-hmm. But uh, that's, a, that's, a, that's a legitimate issue in my mind. I, I think what you're speaking to um, is also something that uh, I've seen raised in a lot of the confirmation hearings that we've had the past couple weeks. I'm like, I'm enough of a foreign policy nerd that I watched all those on C-SPAN for the last couple of weeks. And there seems to be sort of an interesting dynamic emerging uh, in which many of the nominees like Rex Tillerson or Nikki Haley for UN ambassador have staked out positions uh, whether regarding uh, the uh, utility of sanctions on Russia or the inviolability of the NATO alliance that seem to be at odds with the president-elect. You've worked inside government uh, in, in sort of the highest reaches of government. How do those or how might those fissures uh, become manifest as, as the policymaking process comes to light, and how concerned should we be that there is seemingly this disconnect between the top cabinet officials and and the the president-elect? Well, of course, we have a presidential system. Uh, Presidential leadership uh, is extremely important. Uh, A lot of uh, subordinates who uh, may feel uh, that they can stand up to the president, uh, I have experienced that once they enter the over office, the behavior changes very (laughs) much. We have very much uh, our system... Though we're very democratic, uh, uh, is uh, the the uh, the attitude towards the president is uh, we treat the president with uh, a great deal of deference and respect uh, and respect his authority. Uh, I had experience of working with a lot of other heads of governments uh, and uh, like the UK. Uh, very different when you enter the prime minister's office. It's uh, you don't. He's first among sense. equals. Yeah, right? not, you, not, you know, he's sitting in his yeah. shirt and you argue back and forth. Uh, but uh, we, uh, uh, everyone else, you can do that with the president. Uh, so uh, is, is different. Oh, so if the president is, uh, has strong views of how he wants to conduct uh, America's foreign policy, that will carry a huge amount of weight, uh, obviously. He was the one who was elected and... Uh, he has selected these 
cabinet members. So uh, the question is, will he be, what kind of a model uh, will he follow? Uh, uh, will he make his views known at the beginning and, uh, and ask for implementation plans? Or will he raise questions and have a debate and do a then summary and conclusion at the end, so to speak? And we don't know that yet uh, as to uh, where, how he will uh, conduct uh, uh, himself. I've, I've had experience where uh, when the president's views have been clear, people eventually fall in line. Uh, so uh, it will work for him. Um, so... As you mentioned uh, at the outset, one of the, I think, more important dynamics going into the next several months will be how how the United States and and Russia's relationship evolves. Having, you know, served around the world and having observed Russian politics for your, nearly your your entire career before the Soviet politics, what in your estimation are their ultimate strategic goals? Like, why did they interfere with this uh, election? What do they want uh, out of their relationship with the U.S. from a right. Russian perspective? Is it just the elimination of sanctions, or is there something deeper and more profound at stake? Well, I think it's much deeper than sanctions, and that is that uh, Russia f- believes and that we treated it after uh, the end of the Cold War as a defeated uh, power. Uh, did not uh, take their interests into account. Uh, that they want to, uh, under Putin, demonstrate that we cannot solve world problems without their cooperation. Uh, I think they, uh, they, I don't think they have an aspiration or uh, realistically to be uh, the equal of the United States. Uh, their economy is much uh, uh, smaller, I think, maybe a quarter at most of, uh, even, not even that, of the U.S. Uh, and uh, But they want to be t- uh, treated and respected as a major uh, world power. That's quite different, in my view, than the Chinese uh, aspirations, where I think they have a worldview, a grand strategy, uh, uh, for equaling the United States and perhaps surpassing it in, 50, in whatever, I mean, the, the long-term plan that they have for the close to the 2050 or so. So, uh, 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 I mean, and, and to some extent, uh, some of Russian complaints have legitimacy in my uh, mind. Uh, the, uh, and there were periods in which we perhaps could have treated them uh, 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 somewhat differently, uh, but uh, in recent years, they have followed a hostile policy towards us. And they have opposed us in many theaters. Uh, Ukraine, obviously, is one. They have their kind of point of view as to what happened in Ukraine and uh, who was responsible for what. And, but they uh, are asserting themselves in different theaters in opposition to us to make sure we take them seriously. When I was at the UN, for example, the Russian ambassador, always when he spoke, he looked at me because he, he thought that the, 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 the United States was the power that they were talking to. 
and and I try to deflect that by looking at others, <laughs> uh, uh, so to treat them as they are one of uh, several. <laughs> so it's uh, uh, it's uh, uh, and I I don't uh, rule out the possibility of of uh, of, of 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 progress uh, with them given their aspirations, but uh, they would like us to respect uh, an area around them as a kind of sphere of influence uh, of theirs. And I uh, don't uh, think we, and that should be done uh, at the expense of the independence of these uh, new countries. And the question is, a country like Ukraine, for example, uh, its options are uh, one that could become a, a theoretically a NATO member, and that the Russians would regard very negatively. But could it become like an Austria to preserve its independence uh, during and after the Cold War? Should it become like a Sweden, uh, which was quite uh, strong and closely tied to uh, NATO in terms of relations? Maybe now it wants to join NATO, but at least it didn't for a, a long time. But that ties to NATO or Finland, which was uh, neutral, but partnership with NATO. So these are some of the issues that uh, I think the United States would have to uh, think about, and 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 uh, and 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 uh, Ukraine and our European allies will have to think about uh, if, in, in terms of a future architecture with Russia, if that's what uh, what's going to be well, well, so on the, the table. So here's the question: Is that architecture yeah. something fundamentally different than the current kind of liberal world order, the system of treaties and alliances kind of embodied in the UN system? Right. I mean, uh, just two days ago, one of your successors, Samantha Power, in her final speech, uh, kind of likened Russian foreign policy to a kind of nihilism that wants to tear down all these old world orders in which they feel excluded, but has nothing with which to replace it. Sure. So it, it, and I, that is you know, kind of a frightening prospect, considering that you know, this, is the, this is the system that has established kind of world peace, or at least prevented sure. a major conflict between powers for the last 70 years, has established a kind of rules-based international world order that sure. more or less works. Sure. Well, I don't know whether it works well. Uh, uh, the, the, uh, of course, uh, I used to say that about the United Nations uh, when I was there, that, you know, the living institution it needs to adapt to the environment. And the environment, when the UN was established, and now uh, it's very different. Uh, the balance of power has changed. Uh, and the challenges of the world are very different. And if you don't adapt, ultimately, uh, it isn't going to survive because it's going to be irrelevant to, to, the, to, the, to, the, to the circumstances uh, to deal with the world. But uh, what, where I differed with my colleagues uh, at the UN was that they wanted to change only one institution of the UN, which is the Security Council. Everybody wants to get in there with the veto, right? But I wanted to change the whole thing. I reformed the whole thing, including contributions financially. Uh, how the money is spent? Uh, well, that sort of speaks the, the to fundamental and all that. Right? So the rules, yeah. the rules, uh, you know, have to uh, some of the 
Uh, institutions have to adapt, and NATO, for example, it should adapt. Uh, it should be the threats are not only from the East, uh, which NATO was established to deal with. There are a lot of threats coming from the South, and the Germans, if I might speak undiplomatically, have been very resistant to look to the South uh, as a problem. Uh, what do you deal with the problems of the challenges that are produced from the South, like terrorism issue, where we carry almost exclusively the burden of, and uh, it's affecting Europe. So uh, sometimes we hide behind these uh, big slogans of, you know, we have a disorder, disorder is working, and they don't change. Uh, uh, but in fact, uh, you know, the world is not working very well. Uh, it's, uh, there's a lot of instability uh, around the world in different places uh, that... Uh, that the world needs to adjust how to address it. Uh, and, and I think uh, as a result of, because it's, these alliances are not working as well, you get the rise of nationalism uh, and you see renationalization happening even in our, in our own country. And Trump is a, uh, is a, in fact, a manifestation of that, of that trend. And, and the, the trend that you described, though, might be spreading. Um, and we'll, we'll see uh, what happens in, in the French elections. But if, you know, the, the Front National, Marine Le Pen, the populist uh, leader of uh, the, the populist politician who might become right. the next uh, president of, of France, uh, does indeed become uh, elected, win the election, you'll have this interesting dynamic, kind of unheard of dynamic at the Security Council, of which, you know, there are five permanent members, uh, the three of which, the United States, uh, France, and the United Kingdom have historically aligned as the three liberal democracies, but each of those countries may be uh, run by people who have more populist outlooks. And right. how would that dynamic just sort of, how would the composition of the Security Council in that instance affect the, the dynamic of, of the UN's work around the world or of international affairs more broadly? I mean, it would be almost unprecedented. Well, yeah, uh, uh, but the first question is, what are the forces that might produce a Le Pen victory? Uh, and and I'm not sure whether she would win, but uh, that's uh, certainly a possibility. And uh, many would argue that the dissatisfaction with the globalization, uh, particularly as manifested in the refugee populations moving, that Europe doesn't have a, a kind of a strategy or a plan how to deal with the issue, uh, as well as the satisfaction with the Brussels, the, the Brussels bureaucracy, and a lack of enough of democracy in, in, in Brussels is producing circumstances where you get, you're getting renationalization uh, of, of foreign policy. Uh, so one of the issues with regard to NATO reform, uh, which I think uh, uh, needs to be uh, confronted is, is uh, you know, how do you deal with, the, with the, as I said before, with the new environment. On the, if Le Pen wins, Trump is the president of the United States. Uh, and uh, well, it could be that uh, the French who have not always been uh, with us, uh, with all due respect to uh, uh, what you say in the Security Council, is they always uh, kind of try to distance themselves to come with a, th a third option, a kind of, uh, 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 or be a bridge between us and, 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 and Russia or China. 
uh, maybe become even closer to the U.S. Uh, who knows? Uh, uh, but uh, 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 I think the pressure that the U.N. will come under is where India, for example, a rising power, would say, I belong to the Security Council uh, and uh, Japan is already saying it should be in the Security Council as a permanent, maybe not non-veto or with veto power. Brazil, uh, so the, the 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 pressures are coming from um, uh, multiple uh, sources because the balance is shifting, the the uh, the world is changing, and the UN. Uh, uh, one of the things that needs to be thought about what sort of reforms and how that reform could come about because the reform, bringing the reform from inside the UN is extremely difficult. Well, It's a, quite frustrating, actually. Even someone like me who was uh, more comfortable dealing with the UN and the UN membership, I found it very frustrating uh, to advance the, uh, a serious reform agenda. And you, uh, but I was very friendly to the UN uh, as, as a Republican appointee because uh, well, I your, had your predecessor had a much more, well, uh, who was John Bolton in the yeah. position, had a much more aggressive relationship right. with the United Nations uh, than. But, but say, I had yeah. worked with the UN well in Afghanistan yeah. and Iraq on the ground, mm-hmm. and I respected uh, some of their capabilities and contributions. So I, during my hearings, I said, "I'm going. To, uh, you know, we need the UN, and the UN needs us." And many. Uh, Republican senators are saying, "Don't go overboard with this." <laughs> well, do you think the do you think the new Trump administration, you know, feels the this the same way? Well, I'm sure uh, it's not. Uh, the, uh, uh, it's politically popular uh, to bash the UN. I, I think there's no question about that, uh, and the reasons to be unhappy with the UN. Although sometimes the reasons pe- people give about being unhappy with the UN. I think or uh, uh, surprised me, but it, politically it works because, for example, with regard to the vote on Israel recently, attacking the UN uh, because of the Security Council uh, uh, situation. Well, nothing can happen in the Security Council. No resolution can pass if the United States doesn't want it to because uh, the UN is not some sovereign that Secretary General announcing to uh, saying, denounce Israel and everybody goes and denounces Israel. No. It's a membership organization, and, and five uh, have disproportionate weight, uh, some would say. I would say, in our case, uh, perfectly appropriate. Uh, um, but, uh, uh, but we allowed it to, 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 for the resolution to go and, forward. And just for context, you're referring to a resolution that passed last December in which the Security Council uh, condemned the expansion of Israeli yeah. settlements. Yeah. The United States did not veto the resolution. Right. It abstained, letting sure. it pass, causing right. a sort of political uproar but, here. But the, uh, the yeah. criticism uh, legitimately in this case, I mean, I, I, you, you get my drift on the UN reform yeah. and the way decisions are made. Maybe we'll let you get into the details of it. Yeah. More, there are lots of problems with the UN, but this particular problem was the UN-made problem. Uh, this particular problem was our policy 15, well, 15 and members of the Well, they were always council. ready, the others, to, yeah. to, 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 to vote, so, uh, but it didn't happen. It happened now because we wanted it to happen. One more question on, on the UN. Yeah. Uh, the UN is led as of January 1st by a new Secretary General, Antonio Guterres, who is a former Prime Minister of Portugal and the former head of the UN Refugee Agency. He took over from Ban Ki-moon, whose term expired on December 31st. 
I have to imagine in your years in diplomacy, you've worked with and interacted with Antonio Guterres, who's been around the block, uh, so to speak. What's your impression of him? Well, I was uh, pleasantly surprised that he became the Secretary General. uh, And I still would like to know what the the, uh, other deals were for him to become the Secretary General. I think there's there's some horse trading Uh, between I think we we may get some appointments in in the coming weeks in the UN that might manifest that. (laughs) But, uh, uh, yeah, because the emphasis was that the... uh, uh, it would be a kind of East European Balkans uh, person who would. Uh, uh, There's like a system of regional region rotation. It's informal, and it was expected that the person would right. be from Eastern Europe. Uh, and 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 uh, also a woman was uh, a woman from that region was sort of the expectation, but we got we came with some uh, from a country that's a NATO member. Uh, so the, uh, you you cannot that be pleased from a, an American point of view with that choice. Uh, and he has done a, he has a distinguished record. I got to meet him the first time when I was in Afghanistan. He was dealing with the counter narcotics. He was the head of the counter narcotics UN organization. And then he's worked with UNHCR, which deal with the refugee problems, uh, and, uh, making a very positive, uh, contribution in his previous jobs. He's well known to, to the United States. He's, uh, Worked with some of our NGOs at one point in, in Iraq. He worked uh, with the uh, uh, National Democratic Institute doing some governance issues in Iraq. So we have we have very high regards for him. But I have to say that I had high regards for Ban Ki Moon myself too. So because that's, uh, now that he's gone, some people are speaking very negatively of him. He was a good uh, he was a good uh, loyal. Uh, 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 you know, someone who, uh, once he gave his word, uh, he was stuck with it and it worked very, very well uh, with us. Uh, and with, uh, I think he, he, uh, he deserves a lot of credit for his service. On, uh, yeah. I mean, on Guterres, he seems just like such a, a very interesting character. I mean, he mm-hmm. was the, as you said, the, the head of the UN office for drugs and narcotics. And he was also the prime minister of Portugal right. when they decriminalized uh, drugs. Sure. He is an old school European socialist right. who had very good relations with the Bush administration. Right. No, no. We, and, we, and so he's, and he's also like a kind of a charismatic guy. Too. Energetic, so, uh, articulate. Uh, uh, I think he will, uh, he will do well given the limitations of the UN. Mm-hmm. I mean, as I said, he's not a sovereign. Uh, uh, he can do, and he has the bully pulpit to express himself forcefully and maybe influence some set of countries. But I don't believe he can, uh, he, he, he can change the UN fundamentally on great issues of, of security, uh, uh, where big powers or, uh, who have veto power are, are on opposite sides. He can do, he can try his very best, but, uh, if one of the five permanent members stands in the way of a UN taking action, it's very hard for him. Uh, it would be hard for him to, to get the UN uh, brought in. Uh, there are ways he could do some things, but not to change things in a fundamental way. So I, I would love to switch gears right now and, and learn more about you. Uh, you have a recently published memoir in which you tell right. you really kind of a powerful personal story, your journey from Afghanistan to the heights of, of power in, in Washington, D.C. But let's go back to where it all begins. Where were you born? 
Oh, well, it's family, a, it, it, kind it of family is, reborn. It, it is only can happen in America, as they say. You know, I was born in uh, northern Afghanistan in a place called Mazar Sharif, uh, a very poor area. Uh, uh, and my mother uh, had not gone to school. Uh, my father uh, had only uh, studied elementary school. He had finished elementary school and he had uh, traveled on foot about. Uh, a month and a half, he was actually from eastern Afghanistan near the Pakistani border to go to the northern plains of Afghanistan, Mazar-e-Sharif area, looking for opportunity. Uh, and uh, uh, it was a very uh, uh, traditional uh, family, uh, very much uh, kind of a household run by men, uh, uh, kind of not the cooking and the work of the household, not, but sort of the father determining uh, everything. And uh, no electricity at that time, uh, no car um, uh, that uh, to speak of, uh, and uh, lots of kids being born. My mother gave birth to 13 children. Uh, uh, six of whom died before they, uh, you know, I remember the death of, uh, uh, she was married when she was 13 years old, uh, my mother, uh, and uh, I remember uh, uh, the death of uh, a young sister that re- I was by then about seven years old, and I, so, I still remember it very well. I, she was howling from pain for days uh, until... She died, and uh, there was no real uh, real hospital uh, to take her or a real clinic. And the person that came to visit her to offer medication was uh, some pharmacist. There was a little pharmacy in, in Mazar Sharif, and then uh, so. I mean, having these experiences as such a, a young child, did you yeah. realize at some point that this was a place that you wanted to to leave? No, I didn't realize that. And uh, I, I uh, when I was fourteen or so, uh, I had excelled in my uh, class in school, and there was a program uh, in those days called the American Field Service. Uh, it was a exchange student program for uh, that brought sophomores or juniors from high school to America to live with an American family for a year. And I was, uh, uh, to my surprise, selected uh, to, uh, uh, to be one of those. And what shocked me uh, uh, was that when we flew to from Kabul, which was more developed, I forgot, so I was born in Mazar, but at some point we moved to Kabul when I was a uh, bustling the crop. It was, Yeah, it was by fairly, comparison yeah. to Mazar. It was a fairly cosmopolitan yeah. city at that and time, And then too, I probably. flew to Tehran at our first stop, <laughs> and it uh, was shocking how developed it looked. And that started to bother me kind of in a, in a fundamental way as to why was that uh, the case. And then to fly into Brussels, the next stop, <laughs> And New York, uh, you know, landing in New York in the evening when you see kind of miles and miles of lights uh, and we didn't have electricity, as I said. So this sort of uh, uh, was a startling uh, thing because I sort of thought after spending a little bit of time here that 
I wasn't that different that, that uh, or dumb or stupid or I mean and so what was it that uh, you know that I, we, we were doing so poorly and they, uh, they were doing so well that led me into a kind of a political consciousness uh, that the re- reasons maybe in uh, how we organize ourselves what the society is like uh, and uh, so but then I went back after my year and then uh, 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 I came back to uh, to study in the United States for uh, college, and I was planning to go back, uh, but then the Soviets invaded Afghanistan, and I thought that was the end of my plan to go back to Afghanistan. <laughs> so uh, I, I came asking to the University of Chicago, and I'm delighted to be back here, and I'm so, glad so I, to, yeah, uh, I, I, to, to I, see. I, I know so that, that, and that mm-hmm. sort of changed my world. And, but that, but that trip to America. Is what uh, and you're what in California, my, my trajectory, right? yes, in California, because I was planning to be a medical doctor. But as soon as I saw these other things, I thought, no, really, I need to think about these other issues. So uh, uh, I, 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 it, it had a huge impact coming to the United States. It, so uh, I, I know that this very city played yeah. a very profound role yes, in your indeed. own intellectual absolutely. development. Yes, absolutely. Um, what what drew you to Chicago? What drew you oh. to the University of Chicago and to the just like the field of, of international yeah. relations well, of grand strategy? Now I have to say something here. Uh, of course, the, why Chicago? Chicago uh, uh, was a good school. I knew that, but I had offers from several good schools uh, uh, to go. <laughs> but what drew me to Chicago? Yeah. yeah. No, I'm, I want to say Harvard. that. Uh, yeah. But uh, Chicago had a great reputation. Uh, but besides, they offered me the most, uh, you know, I was uh, not from a well-to-do family, and I uh, couldn't borrow being, uh, uh, I just didn't know how to go about it even. So uh, I, none of the others offered uh, kind of full tuition and room and board kind of support, and Chicago did. So that, I have to say, I'll be honest, that was decisive. <laughs> Sorry. Well, and you can make the argument that that changed the trajectory of American foreign policy. Oh, I don't know whether I, but I wouldn't. <laughs> it's very tempting to say that, but no. Yeah. <laughs> right, right. But, but, uh, but uh, no, I, actually, I wasn't interested in issues of development and, and, and problems of epistemology and comparative politics. Uh, and uh, one day, so that you, as one of the students, you can plan, but uh, plans, uh, planning is good and important, but sometimes accidents, uh, being lucky to be at the right place at the right time are uh, maybe even more important. Or, but you have to be prepared, obviously. And I remember that my first week at the University of Chicago, uh, I, I had... Uh, Run into someone who uh, uh, thought I was an Iranian. He was from also he was from Iran, and uh, and uh, the next day I ran into him. Uh, uh, he, he says, "You should come." Uh, what are What are you doing? I said, "My classes uh, were just canceled because the professor just sent us the syllabus for the reading and the schedule for the class, but he 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 wasn't there, so we have to go." Going back to the dorm, he said, why don't you come and listen to uh, his professor that he was taking a course with? And that professor was a very famous American strategist of the Cold War era on nuclear issues called Albert Wolstetter. And he said he's a very unusual character, Albert Wolstetter. He's the father of first strike, second strike distinction for those of you who are old enough, very few, uh, to remember the Cold War days. 
and 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 he was referring uh, this friend of mine uh, said to me to president kennedy as jack to kissinger as henry uh, and he's uh, you know talking about classical and nuclear war very interesting rather than going back to the dorm why don't you come and listen to him and I, I said, okay, uh, and I, I, I went, and uh, as they say, the rest is history. I became his, <laughs> his assistant, and, uh, and uh, he, I changed um, the course of my kind of career planning. And, and he, he's like a lion of international relations yeah, theory. Yeah, right? his, his main his contribution in 1958 was the delicate balance of, of terror, terror. Yeah, yeah, very, which is opposed to the balance of power. The advent right. of nuclear weapons yeah, yeah. Are, are something that Absolutely. replaced the balance of power with the Absolutely. terror that we're all going to Absolutely. Perish. Extremely influential uh, intellectual, uh, 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 you know, helped put the RAND Corporation uh, on, the, on, on the map and uh, has had many disciples who played important roles uh, in American Kind of national security uh, discussions, debate, and policy making, mm-hmm. and and launched your career oh, in, in many ways. I I, it, mm-hmm. uh, I then uh, uh, finished Chicago. I did my dissertation on nuclear issues, and went to teach at Columbia University. My first assignment, uh, assistant professor, and uh, a, a few years later, uh, another development that had a big effect. Uh, on the tra- tra- my trajectory was that the Council on Foreign Relations, those of you who are in foreign policy, you know that this is a kind of Northeast establishment organization for foreign policy elite. And they uh, had a, uh, continue to have, I think, a program called International Fellowship Program. But it isn't really International Fellowship Program, uh, the way the name sounds. What they did was to take young and promising ac- academics and foreign policy and cover their salary for a year and offer them to the government so that the government would have these, uh, say, let's say relatively smart people as freebies to help them do something, think about some issue uh, of importance to them that they may not have people uh, in the government in that office at that time to do. But in exchange, the, ac- the uh, academics learn about how the real world of foreign policy works so that when they come back and to their teaching positions, they are better, uh, more useful, uh, relevant teachers to, to the student. And I uh, went uh, to uh, work for the Pentagon. Uh, uh, I was supposed to work there with Freddie Clay. Some of you may remember him. He was the Undersecretary of Defense. And... Uh, a couple of weeks into my fellowship, he came and said, I traded you today. And what do you mean you traded me? <laughs> said, I was talking to my opposite number, and uh, uh, somehow your name came up. And uh, he said, I told him, yeah, he's working for me. And he said, what is he doing with you? And I said, Zal is working on nuclear this and that. And he said, what? We have hundreds of people who can do that. We need a strategy for Afghanistan. <laughs> Uh, because the Soviets had, were, had invaded it. So I told him, I don't know anything about that. Uh, but then, uh, 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 because my, all of my training had been actually on nuclear issues. So I could never, I did not overcome my, <laughs> my origins uh, at the end. So I ended up moving to the State Department to work on Afghanistan. And one thing led to the other. They, they hired me, the Secretary of State at that time, Schultz, 
uh, to work on the Iran-Iraq and Afghanistan wars. So, uh, so we're going to take questions from the audience in, in a minute. Uh, we have about 20, 20 minutes, 25 minutes for questions. Um, while you're thinking of your question, I will uh, ask you just maybe one, one final question along the lines of what you just said. So it was almost you know, the accident of your, of your birth to be right. born in Afghanistan. Sure. Your, by, by your wits, by your determination to, to uh, come to the United States. Right. Uh, and, you know, each step of the way, you keep getting pulled into Afghan right. policy in, in really profoundly important moments right. in U.S. foreign policy, whether it's the, you know, the, the Soviet invasion or sure. then, of course, after September 11th, right. the invasion of, of Afghanistan. Yeah, yeah. Have you ever, I mean, reflected on that accident, on, sure. on that, just the, the sure. circumstance? Sure. Of, okay. I have a lot of discussions about this with my wife in particular. <laughs> but... Uh, 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 we can well, get married. Later. So the, the the issue is that uh, uh, Afghanistan uh, and the United States have had two big encounters. One was in uh, uh, the 1980s, and uh, uh, with the Soviet invasion we became heavily involved in uh, supporting Afghans uh, to resist the Soviets, and they did, and they paid a high price for it. You know, some Afghans would say that a million Afghans were killed. Many millions became refugees or internally displaced people. And they uh, perhaps uh, inflicted such losses on the Soviet that they may have played a role in the disintegration of the Soviet Union, perhaps. And that was uh, regarded as a great achievement of the United U.S. foreign policy for this super rival, in a sense, ultimately to be defeated, uh, although some may disagree with the word defeated. But then we abandoned Afghanistan, and so... I felt uh, that at the end we didn't do the right thing, so to speak. Uh, we should. Uh, we they 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 stood with us and we stood with them. But then nine eleven was another such uh, such thing. I uh, and uh, and uh, I remember talking to President Bush in the Oval Office when he was trying to. Uh, uh, incentivize me or press me to go to Afghanistan as ambassador. So I said, Mr. President, uh, uh, remember I left Afghanistan. <laughs> uh, what did I do wrong that you want to send me, send me back? Uh, 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 and and, uh, and uh, 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 but because, uh, you know, this country has been so good to me and when uh, uh, the president persisted that I had to do it as a duty uh, to go back. Uh, I, I said yes. So uh, I suppose uh, because of being born there, uh, the, the, my adopted country at times has seen in me as someone that should uh, help it and dealing with this uh, with this issue, and uh, I, although it, I've been reluctant to do, and I actually felt 
I would perhaps not be a successful ambassador given that I was born there and how they would view me uh, as, as someone who was born there. What is this? The Americans are sending one of our own back. Uh, why not a real American? So some might say that. Uh, and I said that to President Bush, actually. Uh, and he said, well, it's okay, Zal. Uh, what I want, will do is, why don't you go back and forth for a while as my envoy? I was, so I was a presidential envoy to Afghanistan for about a year and a half before I'm being ambassador. And, uh, and uh, you know, it worked well, I have to say. Uh, the Afghans, I'm grateful to them, reacted very uh, extremely positively. Uh, the opposite of what I thought how they would react. So I, this has been, you know, uh, uh, the reason this issue has been there is because the, uh, there has been these two encounters between my uh, uh, kind of adopted country and the uh, and the, where I was born, where I, it was felt that I could perhaps help, and I ultimately could not say no. Uh, so let's take questions from the audience. We have uh, mics running around. Yes, we will call on you first. First, raise your hand. Yes. Introduce yourself. If yeah, you'd hi. Like. Yeah. Uh, good evening, sir. I'm Celia Roussin. I'm from France. Uh, hopefully, I think Marine Le Pen will not pass. I think okay. so because we have a different electoral system. But that being said, and on a bigger picture, what do you think of the role of the European Union with um, the current uh, world order today? Why don't we take maybe two questions Please. at a time, if possible? Uh, yeah, we'll go, we'll go one right up front. Yes, sir. Yeah. Uh, wait for the mic if you can. Uh, hi, uh, Voltaire Exodus. Um, I run a tech startup in Amsterdam, a social enterprise. Um, I would like to know, uh, what are some of your expect, uh, perspectives on, um, the UN taking a, a strategy of, uh, the 2030 uh, sustainability goals and how you see CEO Paul Pullman making initiatives to, um, uh, be accountable on a, a corporate resu- responsibility side. Mm-hmm. Um, what is your perspective on private business uh, taking a role um, in areas where traditionally government takes place? And, and just just to point out, uh, Paul Pullman is the CEO of Unilever, right. uh, who and is just sort of known as someone who is very interested in the sustainable development right. goals. So two questions, one on EU, one on the 2030 agenda. I think the, if you look at the EU, EU as a whole, uh, it's obviously is one of the four or five major uh, centers or areas of economic uh, 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 power in the world. And uh, it can and has played a helpful role in kind of, especially in the denationalization of European security policy coming out of the long dysfunctional European history to, to sort of more normalize the security context or policy uh, uh, of, of Europe. And it has helped some of the neighboring territories, especially in, in terms of encouraging to meet European standards and move towards democracy and rule of law and development. However, it, it has uh, had some negative aspects, the bureaucratization of, 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 of EU, and also the lack of adequate integration on uh, foreign and security policy to play the kind of role that its economic weight should uh, facilitate. 
Uh, and right now, its future is uh, is a little bit under under pressure as to we don't know where it will go. And the president-elect said that the other countries might leave it too, and it's, uh, uh, I I don't think that will be positive. That this personally the disintegration of EU. Uh, so uh, it's a question mark. I mean, uh, uh, money. Uh, Analysts, including myself, thinking about the current most dysfunctional region of the world, the like the old Europe of, uh, uh, you know, 19th century, 18th, 17th centuries, uh, the Middle East was whether uh, the Middle East over decades and centuries could overcome its dysfunctionality and be, learn from the European experience. But uh, I get a little discouraged of the European experiment fails uh, and you get a renationalization uh, but uh, but i think the potential is there for a, for as being you know one of the four or five major poles if it stays together and integrates more on uh, the role of the private sector uh, in development i think it's certainly in non uh, state actors uh, whether it's ngos or uh, private sector as a growing and a, a, an important role, and I is, will heartily endorse that uh, myself. Uh, um, uh, and uh, uh, the UN role in development, I have uh, it's very uneven and mixed. Uh, and uh, the EU wastes a lot of money. Uh, the the UN. Uh, has low, over 10,000 mandates. These are resolutions, decisions that the UN has made. And many of these mandates are totally outdated. There, there no, there's no relevance to the current circumstances. But yet money gets spent on these uh, mandates. Uh, meetings are held, reports are issued. You can't uh, get rid of them because some country has an interest in these, uh, their experts or the relative of the uh, ruler uh, going to Geneva or somewhere for these meetings. And, and so I uh, tried to uh, make it my priority to focus on this, uh, to re- release money for development from these useless mandates. Uh, so they said, well, you want to get rid of these because uh, you want to... Uh, Get rid of the Palestinian mandates because they're always suspicious of American uh, envoys being obsessed with Palestinian issues. I said, I will make a deal with you. I will not touch a single uh, Middle East uh, mandate. We'll, I want to get, let's do the other mandates. Uh, start with some other part of the world. Uh, then they said, aha, you want to take the money back uh, because we contribute such a big proportion. And I said, I'll make another deal with you. I'll put every penny of what we save into development, uh, which will be mostly go to the third world countries. Uh, I still, I think, I, uh, after uh, you know, a lot of effort and time, and as I said, I was well received by the UN, given that uh, uh, I, my, my kind of style was uh, better received. Uh, was that I kind of got rid of maybe out of over 10,000 mandates, 12 maybe? Progress. It's progress. Yeah. yeah. So it's, it's a, I'm... A, let's, uh, yeah, let's, uh, let's take questions from the center. Uh, right in front, yes. <laughs> uh, yeah, go for it. Yeah. 
Hello. Uh, having had the privilege of working in the positions that you have, have you made decisions based on information from intelligence agencies? And what do you think are the global ramifications of our minority president-elect dismissing these agencies' intelligence as unfounded? Yeah. Okay. And let's take one more question. Uh, yeah, right behind. We'll just work back. Yeah. Hi. Uh, my name's Hamza, and I'm a oh, political science student at the University great. of Chicago. My question is, you spoke about how we haven't had a grand strategy post-Cold War, and I understand the desire or even need for having a grand strategy in a bipolar world where our competition is against one other superpower, sure. but in an increasingly multipolar world, how important do you think having a grand strategy is when each region or regional power might require a different strategy? Sure. Thanks. Well, shall I? Yeah, which, yeah you can two. pick whichever one you want. Oh, no, to I want to do both. First. Yeah. On, in, on intelligence, uh, of course, I relied on uh, on intelligence, but I also relied on other sources. Uh, uh, on uh, one of our big challenges to be effective in foreign policy is to understand others, and uh, there are tactical intelligence issues. I mean. Uh, Will this person do that on this day or with, uh, you know, some weapon be brought in or some weapon be tested or uh, that sort of uh, intel? That, those are operationally very important and you cannot but rely on intelligence uh, for that. But then there are strategic sort of intelligence, as I would call it, to, to sort of have a sense of a feel uh, for uh, for the culture for the language for the history for the uh, mindset uh, even the concepts that may may use the same words but may mean different things uh, and 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 uh, the intelligence community can uh, play a limited role in that regard um so uh, for those of you who are thinking of uh, contributing to national security or foreign policy, I, I think if you get yourself prepared for uh, outside the government in the, sub, in the second category, uh, then you can make better use of and no limitations and use of the tactical more intel that I talked about. Now, with regard to tactical intel, We've had great successes, and we have had um, uh, mistakes, too, where we have uh, predicted or thought X would happen, Y has happened. Uh, we've been wrong on all sides when we have been wrong. We sort of, sometimes we have exaggerated uh, a problem as uh, we thought didn't exist, came much faster. And sometimes, I mean, for example, Iraq, uh, when we went to... Uh, in the Gulf War, the first war, we thought uh, Saddam didn't have a, a very developed nuclear program. After the war, we discovered, wow, he was very far along. And the second time, we thought he did have a WMD program that was, uh, with regard to biological and chemical, that was mature or more mature, and it turned out not to be the case. And we were surprised by the Indian nuclear test. And uh, we uh, were surprised by the Soviet nuclear program. So, uh, but I don't believe it uh, serves the national interest to denigrate the intelligence uh, community. 
but the reform of the intelligence committee, how to make it uh, a better and more uh, uh, instrument I support, uh, as I do with regard to the other agencies of our government. Uh, I mean, I have a lot of experience uh, dealing with the State Department, with Development Community, USAID. These institutions also need to be reformed. Uh, as the intelligence community and defense too. So we, we need to all renew ourselves. So that, that's where, uh, that's where uh, I would come down on the grand strategy. Uh, you may be right that, that, that it's more complex, but the question is that, uh, that we need to, uh, as a country, to have priorities, uh, in my judgment, uh, as to what really is important. What is uh, we must accomplish, and what we must, what is not acceptable. And we, if we don't have those, then we are at a loss because you know the world is unpredictable, largely, and things can happen, uh, uh, and we don't have a sense of priorities. Uh, and 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 we need to have priorities because there is not enough uh, resources to do everything everywhere all the time. And and so I I think I, I, your your point is well taken on, on a kind of a simple and uh, bipolar world uh, strategy uh, is not practical, uh, but I'm sure uh, we could have a set of priorities. What in each key regions, what is not acceptable, uh, what is, we must have, so to speak, that we need to decide on. Uh, we can take questions at the back of the room. Yeah, uh, right there. We can go. You. Yes. Just wait for the mic, please. Hi, my name is Corinne. Um, I got to study international political economics as an undergrad. So you said earlier when you first sat down that past presidents have not had a very good relationship with Russia and that current president-elect Trump shows to have a more promising or friendly relation with Russia. Wants to. Wants to. But yeah. given Russia's recent history right. in the past years with Crimea, anti-humanitarian hacking, um, is it necessarily a smart move to have a friendly relationship with Russia at this point? And we'll take, we'll take uh, one more. Uh, yes, up front. Yes. Uh, just wait for the mic. Hi, my name is Anna. So we talk about Russia a lot. And Russia is definitively one of the biggest issues that we face today. But we haven't mentioned terrorism. I think it's another big one. How do you think our strategy or U.S. strategy will change now with the new administration? And do you think uh, President-elect have enough understanding or deep understanding of the issue to be able to deal with it? Yeah. Well, on Russia, good questions, two very good questions. On Russia, uh, I, I, there are people who are arguing, uh, and very smart people uh, who are arguing that uh, given what Russia has been doing, and especially in the aftermath of the hacking, uh, the kind of brazen hacking that has occurred, uh, one should follow a hostile policy and do not... Uh, this is not the time to reach out uh, and come to an agreement uh, on some things. Uh, I, I come at it slightly differently, which is uh, that 
testing whether something can be improved, uh, appropriately uh, prepared for and sequenced may not be uh, bad. And in fact, if the, that can be done in the near future without stopping anything that we're doing uh, on determining what they did and what are our weaknesses, how do we strengthen it, may not be a, 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 a bad idea. Uh, uh, it may be prudent even, uh, because I think given the environment in which we operate, uh, Russia would have to make the concessions at this time. It would be difficult for President-elect Trump, given the domestic environment in which he operates, uh, the hostility on Capitol Hill, uh, for him to make concessions to to, uh, he, I don't think he could sell removing sanctions uh, on Russia, get a congressional support without Russia uh, doing uh, uh, some things. Uh, on uh, uh, one can start with cases of U- uh, uh, Ukraine. Uh, I talked about some options for Ukraine. Uh, we could talk about Syria uh, on some issues. We could talk about the coming U.S. Ele- uh, European elections which are next year there will be in the 12 months, three big elections in Europe, what our expectations are on rules of the game. So uh, uh, I wouldn't be in favor of any uh, softening on our stand before there is uh, verifiable uh, steps that they have taken. Uh, 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 But we'll prepare for, and I would also say that the uh, uh, military buildup that uh, Mr. Trump has promised with regard to cyber, you know, tightening our uh, cyber issues uh, are off, awfully complex and uh, and other weaknesses that uh, they should go in parallel with each other. That's, uh, that's uh, I think, is a, a maybe a prudent way to do, to go. But I respect uh, a lot of my friends who have been in the trenches with over many decades there, <laughs> I'm, some of them have a very different view that uh, that uh, uh, Russia needs to be confronted. Uh, uh, it may be that uh, the test will fail, uh, and we may have to take another look. But I regard uh, that uh, maybe I'm wrong in my conceptualization of what Russia wants is seeking, and what China is seeking. So you know, the sense is uh, you know. Even if you don't like many powers, at the same time, it doesn't serve the U.S. interest to po- pursue policies that gets them to work together against us. So, uh, so uh, uh, it's, 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 uh, you know, we got a lot on the on the plate, so to speak. And the issue of terrorism, uh, I think the uh, I think the future of the world of Islam uh, is 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 one of the top three issues uh, for 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 uh, for the world and especially the united states and part of the crisis of islamic civilization uh, which is you know what went wrong why are we doing so badly we used to be dominant we're the kind of ultimate religion to perfect all other religions and then look at what we're doing and what's uh, what's happened to us is this reaction that is uh, extremist uh, terrorist, which believes that you can't solve your problem until you've taken over the world almost. Uh, and so 
very complicated, uh, given the, uh, uh, that we're talking about 1.6 billion people. Or, or, uh, and my advice to the president-elect has been, don't try to get all of them to hate the United States by sort of, and to be very careful about making distinctions uh, here. Uh, uh, so, uh, uh, and, 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 uh, I think you'll understand that over time, uh, you know, you'll get exposed uh, to uh, to information. Yes, some instinct, some inclination, uh, some attitude. But now you'll have the as of tomorrow noon, and then uh, maybe already has the entirety of the U.S. and many experts uh, would be more than happy to 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 help. Well, and, and perhaps in in the coming years, you might be one of those experts in in the room with him. Uh, Ambassador Khalilzad, thank you so much for your time, for speaking with me. Um, the ambassador will be available to sign his, his memoir, which is a, a fascinating read that tells the inside story on some real key moments of the U.S. foreign policy of the last uh, several decades. Thank you so much. Thank this you. Great. Thank, great. You. thank you. Thank you all. Thank, thank you all. Thank you. thank you very much. That's great. Thank, thank you. you. Well, that, that was great. great. Thank you so much. All right, that was great. And I must say a huge thank you to the crowd, to the the 200 people who showed up on a rainy, cold night in Chicago to watch the event. It really was a a wonderful format and a great way to get to interact with listeners. And also uh, just great to hear questions from the audience. I love taking audience questions. I should do this more often. If you want to bring me out if you are with an organization and want to uh, have a live event i think it worked really well it's a good format let me know i'd be happy to uh, to talk it over with you 